and he said the kingdom of god is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground he sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows he knows not how the earth produces by itself first the blade then the ear then the full grain in the ear but when the grain is ripe at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come and he said with what can we compare the kingdom of god and what parable shall we use for it it is like a grain of mustard seed which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth yet when it is grown it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables he spoke the word to them, as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. So today we're going to talk about the second and third growth parables. The parable the sower was the first. These parables all have their theme as their theme some kind of kingdom-related growth. The first covered our growth, or lack thereof, be based on how we respond to the word of God, and particularly the word of the gospel sown through um, Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus. I got my little pencil here because I found a mistake. <laughs> okay. But despite this being um, another two parables concerning seeds, neither will have the seed functioning as the word of God again. Instead, these are kingdom of God parables and start out with some variant of the kingdom is God, of God is like, what is the kingdom of God like? Remember that parables are extended metaphors or similes comparing one thing to another but a metaphor is never an absolute. Your eyes might be like the sea before a storm, but that doesn't mean Buttercup is going to get, you know, struck by lightning or swept overboard if she sticks her out, right? Parables are, alike, are like a situation or thing, but they're also not like the situation or thing. If we get bogged down too much in trying to force the analogies um, into equivalencies, where everything you know, perfectly matches up, we will stretch and ruin the message of the word. Believe me, there is more than enough there, as it is, and we don't need to go beyond Yeshua's beautiful kingdom messages here. Hi, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years' worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. 
All scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. And without further ado, let's dive into the scripture this week. Uh, this is chapter four, by the way, starting in verse 26. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Right away. The kingdom of God is as if. And so we know that Yeshua is going to share a mystery about how the kingdom works. In this case, the picture is incredibly familiar. A man scatters seed on the ground, and so far it sounds very much like the parable of the sower, right? But it isn't. We really have to push away that desire of needing to use the one to interpret the other. This, by the way, is called a similitude. Oh boy, you know, you didn't think you have to have an English lesson day, right? A similitude is when one thing closely resembles another. So we pull back away from the parable of the sower and we just allow the word picture to form in our heads because this is what Yeshua's audience would have done. Picture it. A man scatters seed on the ground. Verse 27, he sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. First, I want you to notice that it says nothing at all about the soil or wasted or fruitless seed. For that matter, there's nothing about rocks or thorns either, or the sun beating down on it. The man has scattered seed, and then he sleeps and rises night and day as Jewish biblical days are reckoned as beginning and ending at sundown. I imagine most of you know this. Um, as the man does nothing, the seed sprouts and grows. So agriculture in ancient Israel was wholly dependent on the rainfall, which means it was wholly dependent on God. If it did not rain, the crops died and there would be famine. Um... No sprinkler systems, no diverting water from the Nile or the Jordan, like in the movie King of Dreams, right? Or maybe they could divert from the Jordan. I don't know. I've never been there. But um, that's just not how it worked, and, and you could only divert it so far. Um, there were, you know, they were 100% dependent on God supplying the rains. We, we just can't even come close to imagining what it was like to live under those conditions because we have a lot of amazing tech. I live in the high desert here in Idaho, all right, where we divert water from the Snake River into canals, but, you know, not in first century Israel. Now, I personally imagine this, you know, as um, talking about, the the sowing of the barley right after the festival of Sukkot, or you might call it tabernacles, at the time of the early rains. And I know that might jar your sensibilities, but the agricultural year in Israel began in the seventh month, not the first. And so they had the early rains in the fall, 
after the festival when all the harvest was in for the year and uh, the late rains in the spring after the barley harvest and Passover. We know this from the Gezer calendar, which I did a teaching about for Yom Teruah, Rosh Hashanah, Feast of Trumpets, whatever you want to call it, last year. Um, they would work hard to get that barley seed scattered, and then they would plow it into the ground. Then they would pray for adequate rainfall over the winter to grow and sustain the barley. This was the time of year when the wadis would go from dry mini canyons to deadly rushing rivers in a matter of minutes as rain from the high country flowed in and swept away everything in its path. You would not build your house in a wadi or anything in a wadi. You would want to camp in a wadi during this time of year. And so... There's nothing, you probably wouldn't want to ever camp in a Hawaii because you just don't know. Um, and so, you know, there, there's nothing else to do. He's completed his agricultural sowing for the season until the spring, and he cannot do anything to help the seeds live or grow. But, you know, without his assistance, the seeds do sprout, and they do grow, but he has no idea how it's happening. You know, science is fun, and all those little videos about the seeds sprouting under the ground and all the biological processes we know about all that stuff and about their genetic coding, telling them to do it. But all this man knows is that it works, right? It's going to end up feeding his family. Nothing else is really important. You know, we, we, we need to look at it from his point of view. They They had a much simpler point of view. Everything was in the hands of God or the gods. They didn't think as much in terms of science. That would come later. Now, the key here is that Yeshua is communicating um, that the growth of the seed is a mystery, but grow it does. If a seed is placed in soil and if there is adequate rainfall, it will always grow. It's an incontrovertible fact of life. Just as the seed emerges from the soil and becomes a mature plant, the kingdom was coming in a way that could not be foreseen until it suddenly erupted and began growing out of control after Pentecost. Okay, verse 28. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. All the sower did was scatter seed and plow it in. The earth does the rest, with no help from the sower, who proverbially sleeps all winter long. He doesn't really. He had stuff to do, but he just wasn't out in the fields, okay? But the growth is not out of order or erratic. One thing at a time in logical order. This is not an unnatural thing, but a sane and ordered occurrence. Growth is always like that. No one except Mithras springs to life full-grown from a rock, okay? You see the growth, step by step, even if you don't quite understand why it's happening. It was predictable only in that it would happen, not in the why or how it occurred, at least not to them. Verse 29. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Here's the farmer back again, 
who was away from the grain all winter, just praying for rain at the right times. And they would also pray for the rain to not be at the wrong times. So he returns at the harvest and puts his sickle to the grain. I want you to notice the word translated grain here. It's karpas, meaning fruit. This isn't the word for wheat, sitos, or barley, krithinos, but the word used for fruit. And you probably know where I'm going with this because, yes, it is the same Greek word used for the fruit of the Spirit. Um, it's also the same from the parable of the sower. Same word uh, for um, producing, you know, fruit 30-fold, you know, 60-fold, 100-fold. Um, let's see where else this word uh, karpos pops up because it will be important. Uh, Matthew 3, verses 8 through 10, this is John the Baptist, who says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. For Abraham, even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Uh, here's Matthew 7, verses 15 through 18. This is Yeshua. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. All grapes are gathered from thorn bushes, or, or, I'm sorry, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but a diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Um, I was just saying, Mark 4.20, parable of the sower. But those that were sown in the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. This is um, Luke 13, verses 6 through 9, sorry. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. If not, you can cut it down. Interesting that the vine dresser didn't say, I will cut it down. He said, you, you can cut it down to the man who uh, owned the fig tree. Um, let's see, John 15, verses 1 through 8. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear by fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, 
unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are withered, thrown in the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So what do we have over and over again here? God's expectations for the growth of not only fruit, but good fruit among his people. There is good fruit and bad fruit, but the parable we are talking about today, the sower does not return until the fruit in the field is mature. Not a few stalks of grain here and there, and the rest gets harvested unripe. He waits for the field to be mature. One way or the other, what does mature fruit look like? Let's look at Galatians 5, verses 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there, things there is no law. Well, what does bad fruit look like? Galatians 5, 19 through 21 gives us an ugly window into that, and I call this the Galatians sandwich because believers enjoy reading most of these and judging the people who do these things. But uh, the sower is returning for mature fruit, you know. And so we really need to take a hard look at what bad fruit looks like when it is matured. Because yes, bad fruit can be ripe and ready to be harvested, just like the good fruit. Just the outcome is not positive. Now the works of the flesh are evident. This is uh, Galatians 5, um, 19 through 21. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Yeah, that's right. Death to the perverts, idolaters, and drug addicts. Ha! Those rebellious losers. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, Ooh, my spidey senses are tingling, tingling. You know, it's, it must be the enemy trying to steal my peace. So let's move on. Drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Yeah, those drunken orgy goers. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's right, those six crazed, drunken idol worshipers aren't inheriting the kingdom. So, yeah, I was a little tongue-in-cheek there, okay? So we have here what I call the Galatians 5 sandwich, or the other guy sandwich. We sure do enjoy calling out the first five and the last two of these. And why? Well, because those are grotesquely obvious sins that only blatant sinners commit. At least out in the open, right? No challenge there. And no one feels bad about themselves. Not unless they start looking at other, more socially acceptable addictions or questioning themselves about whether watching sex scenes in the movie counts as sexual immorality. But we aren't here to talk about those. We're here to talk about the works of the flesh that people pass off as righteous zeal 
or don't give much thought to. Zeal, remember that word? Yeah, remember it. It'll be important later. Enmity was on the list. Enmity is the state or feeling of being actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. For example, enmity between Protestants and Catholics. It's the definition I got off the internet. Whoa there, Nelly. If there's one thing that I see in too many people around me, it's open hostility to people and or things. I see people who hate Catholics so much they would rather die horrible deaths than give Catholics credit for the good work they do. And those poor fools who do dare to give Catholics credit get called papists or worse. I actually did get called a Jesuit spy once. You know, once upon a time for something silly. Oh yeah, I debunked a lie against the last pope. I don't like it when people lie about other folks, no matter who they are. I see people hostile beyond logic towards Jews and Protestants as well. To the point where everything and anything about them has to be mindlessly attacked and discredited. Even if good, or at worst, harmless. That's enmity. Living your life in hostility. It is not a kingdom principle, and more than that, it compromises our ability to love and grow good fruit. And yes, I am sure that, despite the scriptural warning, the reason why you are personally doing it is entirely justified. And that, boys and girls, was sarcasm. In fact, my eyes rolled so far out of my head when I said it that I had to call my kids to go look for them. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Now, strife. Strife is angry or bitter disagreement over fundamental issues. Conflict. For example, strife within the community. Disagreement over fundamental issues is not the problem here. But when it comes angry and bitter, oh yes, big problem. This is when you see the insults and cheap shots brought to the table instead of just sticking respectfully and honorably to the facts at hand. Of course, we don't limit our anger and bitterness to the fundamental issues. Oh, we get angry over the tiny ones as well. Over pet doctrines. Over masks. All right. Of course, our pet doctrines are never small. In fact, there are no small issues in Scripture. And failure to recognize that means that someone isn't really believing the entire Bible, right? Right? Maybe not. Strife is founded on and rooted in control issues and fear, which are both contrary to the fruit of peace and self-control. There, there are things to stand our ground on, but not with bitterness. Stands to take in passion, but come on, hateful anger? Very few issues actually warrant anger. And when that anger morphs into hatred among believers, you know, oh, except for our issues, because they are the most important. And we always have discernment and maturity to hate wisely, don't we? After all, our track record has been so spotless so far. Yeah, more sarcasm. Ah. <sighs> I'm going to have to, now we're almost to the end of the half hour. I just, you know, 
we like to we like to give lip service to the good fruit. We like to ignore the bad fruits that are that seem good that are socially acceptable and especially since the advent of the internet. The internet has lent to a time of no accountability. You know, someone says something vile about people and to people and then if you call them on it, you know, because as believers, we're supposed to hold one another accountable to for special things like reviling, which we will talk about. They say, oh, just keep scrolling. It's like, no, you just flat out got vicious and nasty with everyone and you want everyone to keep scrolling. You know, it's like, sorry, buttercup. It just does not work out that way. If you dare, we'll be back in a few minutes. <laughs> Hi, this is Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome back to this week's Character in Context. And if you're joining us for the second half hour, I'm impressed because I'm being mean. Mean! Alright, we're talking about the, uh, the works of the flesh. You know, because we got to know what mature fruit looks like, and there's the good mature fruit, and there's the bad mature fruit, right? Bad fruit can be mature! Okay. So we've already gone through what? Oh, enmity and strife. And now we're going to get to dun, 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 jealousy. And I'm going to risk making you really irritated, but like I haven't already, and point out that the word translated as jealousy is zelos. Yes, it looks exactly like the word zealous for a reason. In fact, Half the time when this is translated, it is rendered zealous. Zeal is probably one of the most self-deceiving forces on earth. And there's a big difference between the Jews coming to Yeshua in Acts 21.20, who were zealous for the law that they had grown up with and, and knew inside and out, and, and when... And when James and Paul combine that same exact word with selfish ambition in uh, James um, 3, uh, 14, and um, with strife in 1 Colossians 3, uh, 3. Now the problem with zeal is that I have never met a single person who didn't think that their personal brand of zeal was the righteous kind. You know, like Paul when he was arresting and persecuting believers and holding the coats of those who were stoning Stephen? Jealousy, the other way to translate this word, is, is also an ugly thing. It's a blinding thing. Twice in my time as a believer, I have actually had jealous wives after me. You know, the first time because a choir director became strangely fascinated with me. I know. Those of you who have actually seen me, I mean, it's like, I mean, look at me, right? What gives? Who knew that albino Oompa Loompas were so alluring? <laughs> and, you know, the second, because honestly, that was nuts. Because to me, the guy was just needy and constantly whining. And I don't think that any woman other than herself would be attracted to that. 
I certainly never saw him as anything other than annoying. But jealousy's not logical. It's not a logical thing. It doesn't look at the evidence. It is suspicion and paranoia-driven. It happens, you know, but it happens in personal relationships, yes. And also in any situation where people feel like what they have or what they should have is threatened. All right. Fits of anger. This is the one that applies to me more than any other on the list. Okay? Just ask my kids. Of course, they're grown-ups now. I don't get nearly as angry with them anymore. <laughs> Homeschooling was, you know, difficult. But I'm one of those people who goes along and then bam, explosion, okay? As much as I would like to wage a sarcastic defense of this one, it just strikes way too close to home for me to even joke about. It isn't funny because I hurt people with it, all right? None of the works of the flesh are funny. And this one gets unleashed against kids and innocent bystanders on social media way too often. When we launch into knee-jerk accusations and insults over very little, when even a lot shouldn't have moved us into this area of um, fits of anger. Um, rivalries. Uh, rivalries is defined as competition for the same objective or for superiority in the same field. For example, commercial rivalry. Now, this should never even begin to happen in the faith world, but it sure does. I have seen people in ministry go to great lengths to halt the popularity of others. Sometimes over disagreements in doctrine, but sometimes, and this is really shameful, simply over audience share. Problem with rivalry in religion is never above board. We shouldn't be competing against one another. We should be cooperating. Rivalry in ministry leads to one thing and one thing only, the creation of personal kingdoms and empires. We can't build the kingdom of heaven by destroying its living stones. You know, one of the best things that ever happened to me was that um, I got involved in a, um, we called it, at first we called it a confederation of ministries, and people had a fit because of confederacy, okay? It's like, all right, well, whatever you want to call co-op, whatever, but they're like, I think there are eight ministries, and we all, um, we cooperate with one another, we support one another, we recommend one another. If I don't teach something and somebody comes to me, you know, I send you to one of them who does. We don't compete. We support one another. We hold one another accountable. We aren't jealous of one another. We promote one another. All right? And if there's a ministry that I can't promote, I'll tell you something. I just don't even talk about them. All right? Because it's, it, yeah. Really, I, I wouldn't talk negatively about another ministry unless the guy was, like, taking advantage of women sexually or something, or really, really, really destructive. Because you just make him a martyr otherwise. All right. Ah, oh, dissensions is our next one. Dissensions is a disagreement that leads to discord. Now, 
this goes beyond just being disagreeable in your disagreement, which is shameful enough, okay? It morphs ruthlessly into a form of disagreement that ruptures relationships. Honestly, when I look at the relationships being torn apart by flat earth and spherical earth, it definitely qualifies, or, or right now, at least when I'm taping this, mask versus anti-mask. You know, oh, for that matter, archaeologically unsupported stories about Nimrod being responsible for Christmas, leading us to accuse our loved ones of gross idolatry based on theories without any evidence. That's so really hypotheses. It's not even a theory. And just so stories that no archaeologist or ancient Near Eastern historian or Bible scholar has ever been able to substantiate. People who actually agree that the Word became flesh, worked miracles, was crucified, buried, and rose from the dead, and ascended to the Father, the very idea that they're going to be driven apart by a piddly little nothing debate about what shape the earth is, or whether they're wearing masks or not, or whatever, it just boggles the mind, or the Book of Enoch, or Jasher, or whatever. Shame on us if we can agree on the craziest and truest story ever told without a doubt in our minds, and we are daring to call such brain candy salvational? There's a reason, Paul said, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2.2 about divisions. This is what happens when dissensions go too far, and generally it's coupled with strife and rivalries. We divide up into little groups that are now created in our own image, with each side firmly, you know, believing to actually be God's image. You know, it's like God idolatry? Yeah. Most divisions are entirely pride-based, although we tell ourselves differently. We can't bear to sit and listen to something we disagree with, not even when we're wrong. Oh, not that we're ever wrong. Oh, no, surely not. They're wrong, and, and probably because of rebellion and on purpose to boot. We're just defending orthodoxy. Oh, man, you know, the stupid things that divide us when we agree about so much and when we owe each other so much love. But envy. Envy is a feeling of discontented or resentful longing aroused by someone else's possessions, qualities, or luck. Since uh, coming into the ministry uh, seven years ago, I see a lot more of this than I used to. People in the body unashamedly announcing their envy of another believer's money, following, children, health, etc., etc. You know, I admit, I myself, you know, being barren, I am prone to ugly fits of envy when X is pregnant again. And when people with healthy, physically sound kids are complaining about things that seem stupid to me as a special needs mom, or when such and such is complaining about the burdens of being pregnant when I got my kids the hard way through a very messy adoption that, that cost us just about everything. You see what I did there? I vocalized what is usually only in my thoughts, and I did it to show what envy looks like. 
should i be mad at the people who don't know the heartache of being barren do i want them to be barren course not do i want others ki people's kids to be disabled so they can get a taste of my life no and the last one good grief no one should have to endure that i wish i was the only member of that club you see envy isn't just about what they have, it's about unconsciously wishing that someone else was privy to our pain. Envy is entirely selfish and often rooted in ingratitude and pain, and yes, it is a work of the flesh because our pain is no excuse. Now, these aren't on a different list from the biggies, all right? The sexual sin, the orgies, the, the drunkenness, the... The idolatry. They're included as equals on the same exact list. That's why they were in the middle, okay? And the people who do them will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see why I push character over knowledge? Each of these despicable heart conditions are sandwiched between the outward obvious works of the flesh. The sins everyone can see. Coincidence? No way. This is the sandwich Paul described when he talked about how flawless he was in his Torah observance, while on the inside being a murderer. Paul kept the feast. He kept the Sabbath. He tithed. He ate clean. He threw coins at the beggars at the gate. He was also a murderous wretch on the inside. No one cared because he was keeping the letter of the law in the strictest sense on the outside. Paul knew what he was talking about and, and what he was doing when he wrote this. At least Paul wasn't making excuses for himself anymore. So when are we going to stop rewriting the works of our flesh as somehow being virtuous and justified acts of righteousness? You know, I'll tell you the truth. We have to want to see ourselves as villains before the spirit can even be able to begin to get a word in edgewise. Until then, we're just fakers. We're keeping a set of rules and patting ourselves on the back for being so obedient. But image bearers? No. That requires integrity inside and out. It requires picking up our cross and carrying it. It requires pain and suffering to be like the very image of the unseen God. You need to know that. If after reading all that, you know, if your response isn't introspective, but a, yeah, but what about, you know, this other person, or this other denomination, or this other religion, then, then you've completely missed the point. That we are all included in that list. That this sort of list is meant to offend our flesh. It's our choice, however. You know, whether we give voice to that flesh or simply tell it to shut up for once and stop making excuses. Oh, okay. You know, we were talking about the purple mustard seed, so now we're going to get back and finish up with the very famous parable. Verse 30, and he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air 
can make nests in its shade. Fun fact. Did you know that in medieval times, mustard seed was called Eye of Newt? I mean, come on, you didn't think witches were going around gathering newts and removing their eyes, did you? Talk about time-consuming. No, that was the common household name for mustard seed. I suggest grossing out your kids with that bit of information. Hey, Mom, what's this tangy taste in my sandwich? It's Eye of Newt crushed and mixed with vinegar, dear. <laughs> okay. <laughs> mustard seed is proverbial, proverbially small. There are about 750 seeds to a gram, but that is still much larger than the orchid seeds that they knew about and used. Orchid seeds, get this, which were grown for their tubers and were and are eaten in that part of the world, if you wanted enough to equal the size of an aspirin tablet, it would take half a million. But in the ancient world, and particularly in Judaism at the time, the size of the mustard seed was often used for this type of comparison. So, this isn't an error in the text. It is a proverb using a well-known idiom or maxim or saying. Ugh. Remember that the Bible is about communicating God's message to his people. It is not a science book. If it was a science book, oh my gosh, we would never have a chance of understanding it because our idea of science compared to what God knows is like tinker toys. And I say this as a degreed chemist, okay? I mean, what we think we know, we really don't even know compared to what there is to know out there. Yeshua is communicating a principle, not giving a horticultural lecture. We're not, you know, this isn't botany class. Now, Pliny, or Pliny, I never look, okay, had some very interesting observations about the mustard plant. He was a contemporary of Yeshua, meaning they lived at the same time, not that they knew each other. He was quite the Renaissance man when it came to studying out and recording naturalistic facts and such. He would be called, or he he could be called, excuse me, the inventor of the modern encyclopedia, and, and actually he is by some people. And it wouldn't be too far out of line, you know, to say so, because he really, he got that organizational thing down. Here's what he said about mustard from Natural History 19, 170 to 171. All right. With its pungent taste and fiery effect, mustard is extremely beneficial for the health. It grows entirely wild, though it is improved by being transplanted. But on the other hand, when it has once been sown, it is scarcely possible to get the place free from it, as the seed, where when it falls, germinates at once. And it's yummy. Okay, I, I, that's my, I added that. It's yummy. That wasn't in plenty. <laughs> in other words, mustard made life better, but it was a colossal pain in the butt to get rid of once it had taken root. Um, mint is the same way if you ever made it, the mistake of planting that in the ground. Oh my gosh, mint. Yeah. Right now, I am trying to eliminate a morning glory infestation in my yard. You can't pull it out because if you do, the roots will go even deeper and the problem's worse. 
You have to kill the roots all the way down, and there is no pretty or easy or environmentally friendly way to really do that. If you have morning glory weeds, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Under the right conditions, the above-ground parts can grow up to a foot or more or a lot more every day. Their seeds can lay dormant up to 50 stinking years. I'm sorry, but that's just evil. But the frustration I have with the morning glory is the frustration the Romans have and the the Romans and the communists um, and so many other governments over the past 2,000 years have had with the seed of the gospel. It gets planted and it's going to infect someone. Maybe not everyone, but someone. And once it does, then it's there in the midst of society and it can't hardly be gotten rid of. Not to say that there haven't been successful extermination campaigns in some areas, but that generally just makes the problem, quote-unquote, worse because... When unbelievers see the faith and hope and the difference in believers as they die, they're profoundly infected by, affected by it. Infected, too. Infected works. Maybe, uh... <laughs> yeah. So, this is why it's such a tragedy when believers absolutely bristle and howl and pitch a fit over being opposed. It's bad fruit, guys. Very bad fruit. I say this often, um, that if we aren't different from the world, then we are no different from the world. You can avoid immorality all you want, but if you lash out when opposed, then you are no different than the world. We have to learn to take the blows on the cheek and turn the other one, not hit back. Our egos are irrelevant. Pesky, but irrelevant. Virulent, but irrelevant. So, um, you know, I used Morning Glories as a modern example here in the West, um, but maybe virus is a better or partial modern picture. One that just, you know, infiltrates everything and is so hard to get rid of, you know, pre-antibiotic. Let's pretend there are no antibiotics and, and that the body will not fight it and that it's not going to kill you. All right, let's pretend it's a beneficial virus because, you know, remember the whole parable thing, you know, it's like and it's not like. Well, this is more not like than it's like. But as far as the contagious aspect, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, verse 33. With, so, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak anything to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Remember, he said, do you not understand this parable? No, of course you don't. How then will you understand all parables? I will explain them to you later. I added, you know, it's, it's the... the the story behind the story. No mystery here. Only mysterious to outsiders. And only for so long as it had to be. That lamp was going to be put up on a lampstand. Yeshua was going to be put up on the cross. He was going to die. He was going to resurrect. The world was going to change. And then the mystery would be completely revealed. No more secrets. No esoteric knowledge. No secret doctrines. 
no stuff that they have to hold back until you've reached, you know, a certain level or, or whatever, like they do with, um, say, Mormonism and, and mystery cults. Um, you know, it's not like that. You get it all. I mean, you may not understand it on the first day, but you have access to it all on the first day, okay? Again, with the insider-outsider language, you know, and... In that, in that verse, we got that where he explains it. Um, and pay attention to the fact, you know, as we've seen over the last four weeks, that no one was doomed to be an outsider. Okay? An outsider could become an insider. Stick around. Stick close. Press in deeper. Ask the questions. If they stuck around, Yeshua would teach them and they would become disciples. Not the twelve, but disciples. And we know of at least 72 more disciples beside the twelve. And um, by Pentecost, there were 120, you know, praying together in the house. And by in the house, of course, we mean the temple, which was known as the house. And next week, we're going to start a new series where Yeshua is no longer dealing with opposition from humans, but he's going back to battling the cosmic forces of nature, demons, and death as the powerful Yahweh warrior of the prophets. Chapter 5, here we come. It took... Isn't that it terrible? It took us 21... took me 21 teachings to get to the end of, of chapter 4, but I don't like to skim. I don't like to skim. I don't like to skip over stuff, even though I haven't exhaustively taught anything, because there's still more. But I enjoy this. I hope you're enjoying this, and um, hope you're looking forward to uh, Mark chapter 5, starting next week. Bye. <music>